big part of my job is working to get certain chemicals regulated or banned. And the bottom line is that we, we need to do this research to, to show that these chemicals are present in the wildlife, because then we can take it to the authorities. And hopefully they then work with other European authorities to bring a lot of evidence to get these chemicals banned. Welcome to the Women in Ocean Science podcast, hosted by me, Charlie Young, and me, Mad St. Clair. We're two marine biologists on a quest to elevate the voices of our fellow female scientists. Each week, we'll be diving into a new and exciting piece of research authored by a leading woman in marine science. From fisheries biologists to chemical oceanographers to PhD students and researching mamas. We'll be hearing from the pioneering female researchers of today to put a new spin on scientific publications. And smash down some gender stereotypes in the process. So tune in every Monday for a podcast that champions the research of lady scientists and shines a positive light on the work being done to protect the ocean. Hey team, happy Monday and welcome back to another episode of the Women in Ocean Science podcast. And today we have a bit of a brilliant story because six years ago, Claire was working a job she hated in a high pressure accountancy firm in London. But then one day, after over 12 hours in the office, she came home and had a major reassessment of what she wanted to do with her life. And today, She's living her childhood dream and studying Wales. Now a PhD candidate at the University of Oslo, Claire is researching the effects of pollution in Norwegian orcas. Today we'll be discussing her paper titled Praying on Seals Pushes Killer Whales from Norway Above Pollution Effects Thresholds and why having a child and doing marine science as a woman shouldn't be mutually exclusive. Claire, welcome to our podcast. We are absolutely stoked to have you here today. Um, how are you doing? I'm good. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's such an honour to be here and be able to chat to you. And we've just finished reading your paper and we are so excited to chat through this today. Um, I can see that your paper is based in Norway. Are you in Norway at the moment? Yes. So I live in Oslo in Norway. I've lived here for the last, oh, it must be nearly seven years now, six wow. or seven years. I'm losing track. Um, but yeah, no, I love it. I love it in Norway. Um, yeah, it's a great place to be. A great place for a lot of whales here. So a lot of really good research for me. I mean, Norway sounds pretty dreamy to me. So anyway, Claire, today you are here to talk to us about your very exciting paper, Praying on Seals Pushes Killer Whales from Norway Above Pollution Effects Thresholds. Um, now, Charlie and I, when we were rereading this this morning before uh, before the podcast, we were incredibly, incredibly excited to discuss this. Um, I remember studying ecotoxicology during my I think it must have been my third year during my undergraduate degree and it's such, such an interesting topic. So we really are exciting to have you on board today. And so if you could start off by giving us a quick abstract-like podcast summary of the paper, that would be brilliant. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll do my best. So <laughs> <laughs> the basic background for the paper is that killer whales in Norway, um, they were always assumed to just eat fish and primarily herring. And that was kind of the assumption for many, many years. But due to some research in the last few years, we found out that some killer whales in Norway also eat seals. 
And that can have really big implications for how much pollution they have in their bodies. Um, because when they're feeding higher up in the food chain, um, they accumulate more of the pollutants because these pollutants are very persistent. They don't break down. So on each like trophic level in the food chain, it just kind of builds up and builds up. So all of the kind of the risk assessments for the population when they kind of say, how is this population doing? Are they at risk from pollution? They were kind of always just assuming that these whales were just eating fish and taking samples from fish eating whales. And the pollution levels were generally pretty low. So they were like, yeah, you know, this population's fine. But of course, you do have some parts of the population that are eating seals. So in this paper, we took samples also from seal eating whales. And we compared the levels and we found that the seal eating killer whales had four times higher levels of these pollutants than the whales that were eating fish. Wow. And this had really big implications for the, uh, the thresholds for health effects. Um, so all of the killer whales that eat seals in our study, they were over this threshold for health effects. So they could uh, have problems with reproduction, with development, with uh, their immune system. Um, so it had quite big implications. I should probably also mention that these seal-eating whales, it's not that they just eat seals. They also eat fish, but they're kind of like some that seem to want to supplement their diet with seals. So they're kind of eating fish, but also eating some seals and to different effect, to different like degrees. So it's a really interesting area to kind of figure out which whales are eating what and why and to what extent. Mm. I just want to jump in there and kind of go back to the beginning because, you know, you're talking about biomagnification so you know pollutants building up in the food chain and ultimately in top predators like orca um you know they're accumulating in high proportions as you say that is having potentially very damaging health effects but how do these pollutants get into the food chain in the first place and i guess actually on top of that i can add one more <laughs> one more loaded <laughs> question what are these pollutants uh, w- which pollutants specifically were you looking at Yeah, that's a lot of very good questions. So, I mean, (laughs) the bottom line is that these pollutants, they're coming from humans. Um, They're like human-made pollutants. And they're coming from different areas of our our life. So a lot of these pollutants, we're looking at something called PCBs, polychlorinated biphenyl ethers, if I remember the abbreviation correctly. (laughs) Um, And they were used a lot in industry. So these, they were used in industry and then they're put into landfill. Maybe these pollutants leach out from the landfill into the water. Um, Or sometimes they kind of of evaporate into the air and travel long distances and then condense again, especially in cold places. Um, Another type of pollution we were looking at was pesticides. So you can imagine farmers spray the pesticides on the fields and then they wash off into the riverways and then into the oceans. Uh, We were also looking at mercury, which um, you find mercury naturally in the environment. It's an element. But the amount of mercury in the in the oceans and in the world has increased due to human activity and primarily due to burning of coal and gold mining. And this releases mercury into the air, which then can be deposited into the oceans. And some, a lot of these pollutants we were looking at, they were actually banned um, 40 years ago. So PCBs were banned in Europe about 40 odd years ago. Um, and the pesticide called DDT, which has mm. had quite a lot of press, that book called Silent Spring, had a really yep. big effect on helping that pesticide be banned. So it's quite alarming that these pesticides or these pollutants, they've been banned for decades, and yet they're still present in really high numbers in these animals. So in addition to these kind of old pollutants that have been banned a long time. We also looked at four different brominated flame retardants. So that's like kind of a a chemical that you put onto 
onto furniture, for example, or you spray onto carpets to make it less flammable to stop fires. Mm. And these are actually chemicals which we looked at, which aren't banned yet, aren't regulated, but we still found them in in these whales in Norway, in like kind of the pristine Arctic, which you think we shouldn't have any, shouldn't have like any chemicals from carpets or sofas. So it was quite alarming to find those chemicals also present, but it can be really helpful in trying to get those chemicals banned eventually because they shouldn't really be present in wildlife. Yeah, it's absolutely nuts. Um, I I remember seeing DDT in your paper and I thought, gosh, we're still finding DDT in these animals after all this time. What makes them persist in these populations specifically? Because we often see these, as you say, biomagnifying at the top of the food chain Mm. um, in things like seals and whales and dolphins. Um, how, How do these chemicals you know, kind of stay within the animals? So the quite alarming thing is that these chemicals can be passed on from mother to offspring. So it can be passed in primarily through the um, the very fatty milk that they feed to their young. Um, so this mm. is the reason that especially in top predators such as marine mammals, these pollutants are in really high levels because for one thing, they have a very thick blubber layer, and a lot of these pollutants like to kind of accumulate in the fatty tissues, so they can fit in the blubber for and kind of accumulate in high levels there. Another thing is that these animals live really long lifetimes, so they have a lot of opportunities to uptake, to take up these uh, pollutants from their prey. Mm. And, and then, yeah, the third thing is that it never really gets out of the population. It keeps going on to the offspring and carries them through the generations. And because they're just so persistent, like the chemical bonds just don't allow it to break down and they have no way to metabolize or get it out of the body. Um, so essentially the only way the animal can get rid of the pollutant is by giving birth and giving it off to the offspring, which is just awful. Gosh, that oh is gosh. horrific. So it's just essentially a toxic mix of, yeah. of milk being given to the offspring and then also directly being offloaded when the, when the mother gives birth. Gosh, that's yeah. horrifying. And then, you know, obviously these calves are starting their lives on, on the back foot. They're already probably immunocompromised or, or not as healthy as they should be because they're already loaded up with all of these contaminants. Absolutely. And I mean, we don't really have much data in Norway yet about kind of calf survival. But some of the populations in Canada, for example, in the western coast of Canada, they found out that the, the survival rate for the, the firstborn calf is absolutely tiny because the first calf has the most pollutants going into it. Mm. Um, and all subsequent calves normally get a bit less pollutants because the pollutants have mainly gone on to the firstborn calf. So it's very, very common, at least in those populations, that the firstborn calf um, just dies and then subsequent calves have a higher survival rate, but the survival rate generally is quite low for the calves. So what are, aside from um, obviously the impact to survivability for, you know, first calf potentially more, what are the most serious health consequences that we're looking at in large marine mammals like orcas for this kind of level of contaminant accumulation like you're seeing in your paper? Yeah, one of the main ones is uh, immunotoxicity. So that basically means that it can really affect the immune system and makes them less likely to be able to fight off other diseases. Um, And it 
can also cause not just toxicity to the calf, but it can cause um, problems in actually being able to reproduce. So being able to, you know, have enough uh, viable eggs and sperm that would make it possible to reproduce. So reproduction toxicity. There's also some evidence that mercury especially can affect the brain function. So neurotoxicity where um, the brain just doesn't, (laughs) doesn't doesn't manage to work the way it should. Um, But there's still a lot of research that needs to be done on the actual effects of this. And even these kind of thresholds for health effects, they're based on some old studies on harbor seals where they fed the harbor seals certain amounts of these toxins and kind of looked at the effects. Um, But it's quite hard to translate that to bigger mammals. So it's, it's still a lot of question marks, but we can see without a doubt that it's causing them to not be able to reproduce or survive. Yeah. And I mean, it's really interesting that you speak about these thresholds being taken from these older papers as well, because I remember seeing, you know, one of them was 10 micrograms per liter, which was a threshold for immune and hormone systems of health effects. And my first thought was, who who determined this? Was this in orcas? And um, also, I think that it's really interesting that the last toxicological risk assessment in this paper that was used prior to this um, on orcas from Norway was based on findings from 2002. Mm. Um, I mean, it, it really does show how much more data we need to collect on very specific populations of of animals, um, especially different species and different locations of them for for these toxins. Um, Absolutely. And as you say, it's not just you need to kind of have up to date levels anyway. So regardless, this population was due to have another load of samples taken to find out what the levels were. But I think what we found out in our paper was really that it matters so much to understand the population that you're sampling. You can't just go out mm -hmm. and sample killer whales in Norway because they're not all the same. There is like this degree of prey specialization which makes it really important to to know the population you're sampling and be able to take samples from the whales that eat seals and also the whales that eat fish. Mm. Yeah. That kind of then leads us on, I guess, to the methods. I mean, you, you speak about having enough data to really understand the pollutant levels, but inherently working with cetaceans is quite a difficult task. They are, um, they move around a lot. Um, they're, they're inherently hard to try and find. So can you tell us a little bit about how you actually conducted your, your assessment or collected your data on um, the levels of contaminants in this population? Yeah, so um, we were working in collaboration with a, with a non-profit organisation called Norwegian Orca Survey, and they have so much incredible experience with getting out on the water and uh, finding these whales and taking samples. So they were leading the fieldwork, but I was lucky enough to join uh, quite a number of times. And basically, you have a biopsy gun. And this look, this gun kind of has a small dart on the end, which you shoot out from the gun. Mm. Hopefully, you hit the whale. Um, <laughs> and then it has a kind of a punch tip. So it kind of hits the whale. The dart goes in and it kind of extracts a very small sample of skin and blubber, mm. which kind of retracts into the dart and it floats in the water. So... You kind of keep an eye on the dart the whole time to be able to pick it up afterwards. You pick up the dart from the water using a net. Um, and then if you're lucky, you get a very small sample on the inside, which you can then um, process in the lab. Uh, but I mean, it's not just taking samples like this process. It takes ages even to find the whales. And then when you finally find them, we're very uh, 
very aware of animal welfare. So we mm. would never take from whales that weren't really in the right condition. So we've got to look at the sea condition. We've got to look at their body condition. If there's very small calves in the group, we won't take any samples in case we accidentally hit one of the calves. And it could actually be quite dangerous if that happens. Okay. So, and then once you finally find a group where it's suitable, you've got to aim and shoot and <laughs> suddenly a gust of wind comes along and the dart goes off. And then sometimes it hits the whale, but doesn't actually manage to get a sample. So there's so many factors at play. Um, <laughs> so how many did you actually manage to take samples of in the end? Oh, gosh. Um, we got 32 samples in total. Mm-hmm. But for eight of those, um, we only got skin and no blubber. So mm. for the skin, we could look at um, mercury and also these kind of different dietary indicators. But we really needed the blubber to look at the other types of pollutants. So you talk about looking at the diet of these whales. Now, uh, for anyone that doesn't study this, you obviously didn't drive around in boats following them and watching what they ate all the time. How do you go about <laughs> determining the, I love this, about determining the diet of a whale? Well, we we do drive around quite a lot as well and watch them. So <laughs> there are a lot of observations. Um, so that was also important. Um, but in this paper, uh, we used... Um, well, it was published in another paper, but we used the results, uh, something called stable isotopes. And you can use skin samples to look at the stable isotopes of nitrogen and of carbon. So both nitrogen and carbon, they can be found in different isotopes, which means that they're the same element, but different types of the same, different forms of the same element. Um, and you can, without going into too much detail, you can look at the ratios of these different isotopes. So which one is more present? And that can tell you something about the diet. So the higher um, ratio of nitrogen isotopes means that the animal is feeding at a higher trophic level. And similarly, if you have um, a higher level of carbon isotopes, that can tell you whether the animal is feeding in a benthic area or a pelagic area or offshore or onshore. So we could use these isotopes to figure out which, if the whales that had very high nitrogen isotopes were likely feeding on seals. And in this case, all the whales that had the highest nitrogen isotopes we had actually confirmed that those individuals had been observed feeding on seals. And to confirm that, we used a photo identification where you take a photo of the dorsal fin and the saddle patch of the whale and you compare it in a catalogue and each whale has its own individual number. Some of them have names and you can track them over time so you can see where they are, what they're doing, who they're with and most importantly, what they've been observed eating. This is why I love science. How cool is it that you can take a portion of the skin of an animal and you can determine what it's likely been eating? How amazing is that? It's pretty awesome. (laughs) It is mind-blowing. And so, you know, as you mentioned in the beginning, your results were quite startling and you found that the individuals that have been eating seals actually had... um, contaminants four times so levels of contaminants were four times higher um am I right than those that didn't and so that's you know that is a a huge difference and as you say has implications for their health and I kind of just you know want to jump in a little bit more again to what you were saying about a couple of these chemicals that you were testing for 
um, like oh, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to try and say it. Hexobromibenzene or yes. HBB as we'll refer to it, um, was actually found in all individuals. And this is a flame retardant, as you say. And this is, you know, incredibly worrying because it's still in production. It's still unregulated and the impacts are kind of unknown. So, you know, how, how do we deal with this, it's not just the you know the the chemicals that have been banned years ago that are still persisting in the environment and having long lasting consequences on these populations. It's also these chemicals that are, are being produced today without any regulation. You know, how are we supposed to combat um, this threat? It's a really great question, and I think. Oh yeah, <laughs> big question for the morning. <laughs> No, it's it's a really good question. And the bottom line is that we, we need to do this research to to show that these chemicals are present in the wildlife, because then we can take it to the authorities. And hopefully they then work with other European authorities to bring a lot of evidence to get these chemicals banned. Um, that's actually what I'm working with in my current job. I'm working at the Norwegian Environment Agency in the chemicals department. So a lot, a big part of my job is working to get certain chemicals regulated or banned. So I'm kind of on the other side of the of the whole of the fence now. So I'm I'm looking at research that other people have done. We collect together all of this research. We collate it into a report. We often work with other European countries, and we can submit it to the the European Chemicals Agency. Um, we can hopefully work to get these chemicals banned. One of the big problems is that then companies can make other chemicals which are very similar. So these brominated flame retardants, a lot of them have been banned for many years now. But mm. we've got these new brominated flame retardants which are being used, which are essentially the same as the old ones. They've just kind of switched around a couple of classic yeah, a couple of things in the in the thing. But something I'm working on now is uh, is a group of chemicals called PFAS, which have been quite popular in the news. They're used kind of in non-stick pans like Teflon and waterproof jackets. And they're a really harmful chemical group, can bioaccumulate and cause really nasty effects. So there's a group of countries in Europe, including Norway, that are working to get all of PFAS as a whole chemical group banned. So rather than before they were banning individual PFAS, so they're going, okay, we can ban this one because it's harmful, we can ban that one because it's harmful, and then the industry just used different ones instead. Um, what we're trying to do now is say that every chemical under this PFAS umbrella, which is you know thousands and thousands of chemicals, would be covered in this regulation and in this ban. And that's a much more efficient way of banning these chemicals and stopping the industry just substituting it for a very similar chemical which basically has the same effect gosh this is that's, that's really really interesting um talking about worldwide bans because when we looked at things like ddt for example it wasn't just blanket banned everywhere at once um things that are often legal in one country are either still legal in another country or um as you say manufacturers will change the chemicals slightly and we still have this problem with these organic pollutants going out across the ocean all over the world. And so I guess I, I kind of have two questions off the back of this. Populations of orcas, how, and, and I suppose all whales to be honest, but we're talking about orcas specifically today, how, how widespread are orcas ac across the globe? Because they're not just in the Arctic and you've sampled the, popul the Norway population specifically. Um, so 
I guess I actually have many questions off the back of this question. But <laughs> firstly, um, how many populations are there of orcas across the world and, and where are they? And secondly, how different, how variable do you think the persistent organic pollutants are between these different populations? And is that influenced by different countries banning pollutants at different times? So killer whales can be found pretty much all over the world. They are pretty much the most cosmopolitan species after humans. <laughs> so they are just I love that. Um, so in terms of number of populations, that's uh, the million dollar question. We have no idea. Um, but they, they are mainly found in kind of um, temporal zones. So not so much along the equator in the tropics, but they are also found there too. Um, but mainly kind of uh, along the, the higher latitudes. And what's really interesting about the, the orca, the killer whale species, is that there are many different, many different types of ecotypes. So despite mm. the fact that they're found everywhere, they're not just the same whale. They have very specialised dietary preferences. They have different ways of feeding. They have different sounds. Um, people who study bioacoustics, they sound completely different. They think that often they wouldn't really be able to understand each other. It's so different wow. the way the sounds that they make and they call it kind of dialects that they almost speak a different language. Mm. So they're really different populations, such a very diverse species. And a lot of people are working to prove that there are actually different types of species of killer whale. In terms of the amounts of pollutants, um, there was a really interesting paper that came out a couple of years ago and that predicted that over half of all killer whale populations would become extinct within the next 50 years. What? Due to due to PCB pollution, due wow. to some of this chemical pollution, um, there was a lot of kickback to that paper too. So there's been some <laughs> there's been some very exciting uh, responses online. If you're interested in that kind of thing, <laughs> like whenever you argue. put out a massive <laughs> stat like that, there's always going to oh, be yeah. a, a, a large amount of scrutiny. <laughs> It was quite controversial, but it was really interesting because you kind of gathered all this pollutant data from all the different populations around the world and kind of could see which ones were more at risk of extinction and which ones were, were safer. Um, yeah. And it's not so much, there is an element of kind of local um, runoff and things, but the most important thing that drove it was their diet. So there's some population in Canada, there's one population that just eats fish and one population that just eats marine mammals. Mm -hmm. So they live in exactly the same area, they're sympatric populations, but one of them has much, much, much higher levels of pollutants than the other because they're eating these marine mammals. So it's not so much the local sources of these pollutants, because essentially these pollutants are very mobile. They can move all over the world and they mm. typically sink down into into colder latitudes because some of them, they a lot of them, they evaporate into the air and then they travel along in the air streams. And then they when they reach colder climates, they condense and then they get deposited into the into the oceans. Gosh. So uh, it's why the Arctic and the Antarctic too are quite interesting places to look at because there's no, there's not many local sources, but the fact that we find so much pollutants there indicates that they have trans been transported there. Wow. W what is the main driver of these dietary preferences in orcas? Why are they choose? Why are some choosing mammals over fish or splitting between the two? Is it food availability or is it just you know? preference <laughs> it's a really good question and something that um we would love to know the answer to um so i'm beginning a phd in a couple of months and that's actually one of the questions as part of the research project of why some of the norwegian orcas are eating seals whereas some of the others eat fish 
And one of our main theories at the moment is that in the 1970s, the herring stocks absolutely collapsed in Norway due to overfishing. So there was suddenly very, very little herring available. And some of the fishermen went out and started culling some of the killer whales. So there was a huge cull of hundreds of killer whales got killed with shotguns, which is awful, like very disruptive to the whole population structure. But it, our theory is that maybe some some killer whale groups diversified into eating seals during that period when there was this food shortage. And since then, they've just preferred it and thought, okay, why not just continue, even though the herring stocks are much uh, <laughs> are recovered now and in high numbers again. So we plan to test this by looking at some old teeth from the killer whales. So we can, uh, this stable isotope analysis, where you can look at these isotopes of nitrogen and carbon, you can also look at that in teeth. And teeth, just like trees, have uh, growth layers. So you can look at kind of older layers of the teeth when the, when the killer whale was younger. And you can look at what the killer whale was essentially eating then. And then you can look through the years and see if the diet has changed at all. Wow. So some of those killer whales that were killed during that period, we have some of the teeth from them. So we can look to see if they did change their diet during that period. Gosh, it's almost wow. like some, it's like forensic science, isn't it? It's kind of like piecing together what's happened and the story over time. I love it. Absolutely love it. And that, that I kind of want to jump on the back of that. You speak about how their diets might have changed over time because of things, you know, such as culls, but also the elephant in the room is climate change. And, you know, I've read about there being, and there is huge shifting regimes in fish populations where they're found. And Atlantic herring, again, is being impacted by this. So do you see issues such as climate change exasperating this issue and potentially pushing these different ecotypes of killer whales towards eating more seals because their normal, you know, diet or their normal, the normal species that they would eat, um, where it's found is changing? It's really hard to say at the moment. Um, we are very interested to look at that element as well. Um, we definitely can see that the the structure of the food webs are changing up in the Arctic. So as you say, some of the species that prefer warmer waters are pushing northwards and some of the more Arctic species are going northwards again. Uh, in terms of the herring, we have noticed that they've been moving further north each year for their overwintering. Um, they need quite cold areas to old overwinter and perhaps with the climate change and warming ocean temperatures that has some kind of some kind of influence in the fact that they are changing their migrations and, and moving into other areas and other fjords. Um, but at the moment, we really, we really just can't say, but it's, uh, it's an interesting area to look at in the future. Yeah, for sure. Um, and for the last kind of 10-ish minutes now, I'd love to move on to, you briefly mentioned you're about to start a very exciting PhD on multiple stresses in killer whales uh, in June. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Um, so firstly, would you like to tell us a little bit about that? And then I, I guess kind of leading on from that as well, congratulations again, because you are expecting a baby as well. And we're so excited to hear about your experience going into a PhD as well as going into motherhood. Um, and I think, as you've said to us before, that it's it's not really spoken about that much in science about, you know, how, how do you balance both uh, being a mother and doing a PhD? What are the challenges? How, how, how can we be better supported in this area? So um, yeah, take it away. Tell us about, 
Not at all. Even is yours. Two very big. <laughs> there's two very big jobs coming up for me for sure. Um, yeah, I think the thing with um, the thing with having a baby when you're having a, doing a PhD or when you're doing science, it's also it feels like it's not really discussed that much. People talk about, oh, you know, I'll have, I'll start maybe have a family after I finish with this or I finish with that, and then it goes many, many years, or they feel like they have to give up science if they want to have a family. Um, I've been very lucky. I've got an incredible mentor who my supervisor, Professor Katrina Borgo at the University of Oslo. She's just an incredible woman and has shown shown me that it's possible to have both. That you don't have to choose either research or or motherhood. Um, and she's just been such a good example. She has she has a couple of kids, and she's very strict about the fact that when it's the weekend or when she's gone holiday, that's her family time, and that time is sacred. And she shows us that you know it's it's possible to have both. And she's been such a great inspiration. She invites our research group round for for summer parties, and we get to meet her family and be in the garden um, or Christmas events. And that's just been an inspiration because. It don't really think about it otherwise. Um, also quite lucky being in somewhere like Norway, it's quite normal to actually go on maternity leave during your PhD. Um, mm. PhDs are treated as jobs here. So you're not a student, you're an employee. And that means that you have full rights for maternity leave. Wow. Um, so there's actually two other people in our research group that have just either got back from maternity leave or just gone on maternity leave. So there's quite a few women in our group who are who are, have got newborn babies. And that's also been a, a really good inspiration to normalize it and to think that, yeah, I can do that as well. I don't have to choose one or the other. I absolutely love that because it's just so different to the attitude here in the UK. Mm. For one, you know, you've, you've, you've touched on some very important kind of points there. Being regarded as, a, as an employee rather than a student, you know, that's one of my pet hates that people are mm. like, Oh, you're doing a PhD, oh, students. Exactly. It's like, you don't realize how hard people work during their PhD, probably harder than people that are employed in a normal nine to five. Um, and then also this, this, this taboo of, you know, being a, both an academic and a researcher and also a mother. Um, mm. It's almost as if you have to pick one or the other, but it, it really shouldn't be that way. So it's so wonderful to hear that you're in such a supportive environment. Thank you. Yeah, I, I feel very lucky. Also, the emphasis here in Norway on fathers taking a role in the child's up upbringing. So in Norway, there's um, mandatory for the father to take at least three months of paternity leave. Wow. Um, and that's reserved just for the father. Like, obviously, he can take it if he doesn't want to, but then you just lose that time. So basically, it's very, very stupid not to take, not to take that up. <laughs> yeah. um, and it's quite normal as well for the fathers, you know, to do half and half. So you get a whole year of parental leave, which you can split kind of how you like between between the mother and the father. Um, wow. But the major implication of that is that when you apply for jobs, you aren't discriminated against because you're a woman. Because it's basically, I mean, obviously, it's not allowed in the UK either to discriminate if you're a woman of a certain age. But there is always that kind of unconscious, self-conscious bias um, mm. where they're like, oh, we'd like to have her. But, you know, she's at this age and she wants to have a family. So she'll probably go off on maternity leave soon. Mm. You Basically, it's impossible to have that bias in Norway because a father is a man is just as likely to go off on maternity leave for six months yeah. as a woman is to go on maternity leave. Um, so it means that Jobs just seem so much more, there's a much more an equality um, of numbers of women and men doing these kind of jobs and less 
possibility to have any kind of bias. What a brilliant solution to to you know that unconscious bias of is a woman going to take time off is by giving the men, giving men the same option yeah. to take time off. What a brilliant solution. Um, do you know what I think? I, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm pretty sure New Zealand is currently about to start trialing a new thing with with men's paternity leave as well. I'm I'm not sure, but I think it's such a forward thinking model and definitely something that we should be employing across the board. And as Charlie said, especially same thing here in the UK, you, many PhD students are treated as if they are, you know, full blown students here, um, which is totally unfair because the level of responsibility and, and the work that's being undertaken is is more of the role of a job um, than being, you know, the well, what our undergraduate experience here is like in the UK, as I'm sure you're aware, Claire. <laughs> it's not, it's, it's definitely not the same level as, as doing a PhD. So I think when, when you do a PhD, you deserve to have a proper salary and proper pensions yes. and proper rights to leave just like any other job. I completely, completely agree. Yeah. Um, and and so tell us tell us about your PhD. What what are you um, what are you going to be studying? Yeah, so we are going back to this Norwegian population of orcas, and we're kind of readdressing some of the questions that we rose in our previous paper. Um, mm. So looking at these two populations of ones that eat fish and ones that also eat seals in addition to fish, and we're looking at that in conjunction of other stressors. And one particular stressor is whale watching boats. So in the winter months, mm. there are a lot of whale watching boats that come to the area and they're taking um, lots of tourists out and it's, it's not regulated in Norway. So it can be quite disturbing for the whales, especially during this period where they, they really need to eat as much as possible. This is like the, the yearly feast where they need to build up their blubber levels and get as much food as they can into themselves. So we're looking at if these two different stresses interact with each other. Um, so maybe those whales that are eating seals, they're not as impacted by the whale watching boats potentially because they're not as reliant on being in the herring areas where all the whale watching boats are. But on the other hand, because they're eating seals, they have higher pollutant levels. So that could be an impact on them in that way. So we were actually quite lucky in a sense with this COVID year. We went up in November and took samples from whales during a very quiet tourism year because there was pretty much no tourism going on because oh. no one could come to Norway. Um, so we had randomly due to COVID this control year where we could take samples from whales that were unstressed. And then we can compare it to whales during other years when tourism returns of them potentially being more stressed and see if there is any difference there. And so in this PhD, we're not just going to be looking at the levels of pollutants, but we want to look at the effects of them as well. Mm -hmm. So you can do different genetical yeah, genetical methods to find out what, <laughs> what, uh, what the actual effects are. So you can look in like the hormone system or look at the immune effects and see if these pollutants are causing any effects. So it'll be really exciting. Gosh, that is going to be so fascinating. And what a very random but fortunate consequence of COVID. <laughs> Silver linings, <laughs> hey. <laughs> They're few and far between, but I, I'm glad for you that that's been the case because as you say, I'm I'm kind of shocked to hear that this isn't regulated in Norway. You know, Norway, as we've just been, you know, chatting about, seems to be very forward thinking on a lot of things. And I would have thought they would mm. be hot on regulating this sort of interaction. Um, so this is going to be so fascinating. I really wish you all the best of luck with it. And um, 
you know, that's all we've got time for today. But before we close, we always ask all of our guests if you've got any, you know, words of wit and wisdom, a positive message or something inspiring or just absolutely anything that you want to share with our listeners <laughs> at home before we go. Um, I would just say never give up on your dreams. Um, I gave up on my dreams for a short time. I was working 80 hours a week in an accountancy firm in London, hating my life and thinking that this was my soul was slowly being destroyed um and then I thought you know what it's now or never I quit my job moved to Norway um and now I'm studying orcas which is what I've always wanted to do so it's never it's never too late to uh to follow your dreams or do what you really want and don't don't do anything that makes you unhappy because life is too short wow oh Claire that just just hits the yeah that hits the nail on the head um and where can where can people find you if they'd like to hear more about your research or uh, if you're on socials? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter quite a lot um, at C Andrik. Um So you can look me up there. That'd be the best way. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Claire, for coming on today. It was absolutely brilliant to chat. have been listening to the women in ocean science podcast brought to you by women in ocean science and hosted by me mad st Clair, and charlie young if you enjoyed the podcast don't forget to give it a share and you can find us on socials as at women in ocean science we are a non-profit organization so every like comment share and bit of support goes such a long way in helping us to elevate the voices of the women working to protect the ocean and helps us to continue on our mission thanks for tuning in guys and i hope you have an awesome week